according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me one final time in the book of Numbers. We are wrapping up Numbers this morning. This is day 72 in the, uh, through the Bible calendar. So day 72, uh, we're going to cover, we're going to record four sessions today, 72, 73, 74, 75. That means we're going to be wrapping up uh, numbers this hour and then introducing uh, Deuteronomy next hour. If, uh, if you like the math, 73 is exactly one-fifth of 365. So we're, uh, we're half, we're one-fifth, 20% through the, uh, through the reading, uh, effective next hour when we get through with Lesson 73. All right, Numbers chapter 34 through 36. Before we get started this morning, let's take a moment for silent prayer, calling upon our Father and His faithfulness to bless our time in the truth. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we come before you this morning thankful for grace and truth, rejoicing in your faithfulness, Father, and calling upon that faithfulness once again as we study to show ourselves approved. Father, apart from your grace, we would have no hope. Nothing at all would make any sense to us this morning. The, uh, the living and abiding Word of God is not earthly material for, uh, for the human intellect to process, but, Father, spiritual material for our spiritual eyes to be opened for our spiritual ears to receive. And so, Father, we call upon your faithfulness to bless this time once again. We thank you and praise you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, so Numbers 34, 35, and 36. Numbers chapter 34 is a geographical survey of the land. Instructions from the Lord before the conquest, and quite similar to the survey that's recorded in Joshua. And so, actually, it's useful to go ahead and take this chapter and compare it with Joshua 15 and put them in parallel and, and note the similarities, note the distinctions, the differences, and, uh, and work the way through at that point. So let's take a look at it. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Command the sons of Israel and say to them, When you enter the land of Canaan, this is the land that shall fall to you as an inheritance, even the land of Canaan, according to its borders. Notice what it's called. It's called Canaan, based upon the, uh, the former or the the about-to-be-former uh, inhabitants, the Canaanites, that God has instructed to be removed. Uh, once the, the conquering takes place, it's going to be called the land of Israel. And uh, when you conquer a land, you have the, the freedom to rename it based upon what you want it to be, having conquered it. It's what the Romans did, by the way, when they conquered it. They called it Palestine uh, as, a, as a means to try to remove the Jewish identification with God's promised land. In any event, your southern sector... Uh, shall extend or sector or border or uh, side shall extend from the wilderness of Zin along the side of Edom. And remember, Zin with a Z is not Sin with an S. They are different wildernesses. But from the wilderness of Zin along the side of Edom and your southern border shall extend from the end of the Salt Sea eastward. So that's the parameter here. And it is curious as we see the, the dimensions of this land and we compare them with the overall promise that was first of all given to Abraham. 
because Abraham was promised the, 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 the land grant that was given to him unconditionally from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. And that's a larger dimension than what we're going to see described here or what we're going to see conquered by Joshua in the, uh, the book of Joshua. And even the maximum land after David's conquest and after Solomon's expansion, uh, the largest territory Israel has ever occupied in their history is still smaller than the land grant that was promised to Abraham. So all of that map work I think is very useful to do and we'll do some of that today. We'll keep doing more of that in uh, in the lessons ahead. So uh, as we're looking at specific borders then being established here in verses 3 through 15, we have the southern border in verses 3 through 5. Let's read the rest of that. We stopped after verse 3. Uh, your border shall then turn uh, from the south to the ascent of Akramim and continue to Zin, and its termination shall be to the south of Kadesh Barnea. It shall reach Hazaradar and continue to Asmon. The border shall turn uh, from Asmon to the brook of Egypt, and its termination shall be at the sea. And uh, some of the puzzles of what we want to look at with respect to the brook of Egypt and a lot of arguments about is that the same as the river of Egypt? And there's different phrases that are used there for the, the river of Egypt, the brook of Egypt. Um, and is that actually the Nile or is that this Wadi al-Arish that cuts in uh, from the, the Mediterranean uh, into the, the Sinai Peninsula itself? And uh, depending on what you want it to be, you can find a scholar that will agree with you. <laughs> and and uh, I, can, I can show you all of them, you know, at least 20 opinions as far as what this is all about. So that's the southern border. The western border is the easiest one, that's the Mediterranean. <laughs> so verse 6, as for the western border, you shall have the great sea, that is its coastline, that this shall be your west border. So that's the easy part. So we have the south side, which is open to some interpretation and some discussion, uh, depending primarily, not, not just upon the brook of Egypt, but some of these other uh, markers, Akrabim, Hazaradar, uh, there's, a, there's a lot of dispute as to what some of these locations are. Then the northern border, verses 7 through 9. This shall be your north border. You shall draw your border line from the great sea to Mount Hor. You shall draw a line from Mount Hor to Lebo Hamath, and the termination of the border shall be at Zedad. And the border shall proceed to Ziphron, and its termination shall be Hazar Enon. This shall be your north border. And so some of these are also worth looking at. And like I say, with anything that is a geographical location, as you're reading your Logos software and you're paying attention to pl uh, people, places, and things, and anything that could be identified as a person or a place or a thing is going to be tagged as such by the software itself. So you'll be able to, to pull up a map in, in the cases of the things that are places like Mount Hoare. You have Mount Hor as a place. You'll also notice in parentheses it says Mount Hor of Lebanon because there could be multiple mountains with the same name or very similar name in the, in the Hebrew. Pull it up either in the fact book or pull it up in the atlas. If you just want a quick picture, pull it up in the atlas and this will give you the idea. Mount Hor. And then with mouse wheel you can scroll out or you can click on the, the minus button there to scroll out. But when you notice Mount Hor as the northern limit, okay, and you'll notice, actually you're going to start to spot some interesting elements of it because that's far further north than anything 
that, uh, that they conquer in, in Joshua's conquest. Further north in even the boundaries of the territories themselves, when they start getting spelled out, when Asher and, and Zebulun start getting spelled out, Naphtali and the northern tribes. So just kind of pay attention to that, poke around a little bit. You'll, you'll notice Tyre and Sidon there on the coast. Uh, Israel never conquers those. Uh, Mount Hermon is what we typically think of as the northern limit of the, of the land, especially if we're going to uh, go to the, the basic description of from Dan to Beersheba. That's very frequently kind of the limits, the north and south parameters from Dan to Beersheba. But um, Dan doesn't reach as far as, as Mount Hor. Okay? Dan uh, will get you as far as, as Mount Hermon. And you'll see the, uh, the extent of it there. All right, well, we'll do more on that. Let me just minimize it rather than close it. You can open it any time. You can do the same thing with Lebo-Hamath. You can do the same thing with Zedad. Uh, with any of these geographical references, just a right-click, uh, make sure that you select the place, not the, uh, not the word. So you have Lebo-Hamath, the place. That's what gives you your atlas option. If you select something else besides the place, if you select the Hebrew, the lemma, uh, the, the Hebrew word there, which is Lebohamath, okay? Uh, the English Lebohamath is not a translation. It's just a transliteration. It's just taking the Hebrew Lebohamath and giving it English letters. Uh, but if you select that, you'll notice there's no atlas option that's over here. Your right menu changes depending upon what you've selected here on the left menu. So by selecting Lebohamath, then you can open your atlas and it'll zero in over there, Okay? And this was the northern extent that the spies traveled, by the way, because they started in Kadesh Barnea and they spied out the entirety of the land all the way to Lebo Hamath. You might recall that from the, uh, the chapter with the 12 spies. All right, well, let's get through some more of this. Because trust me, I can spend all day looking at maps. <laughs> I can be here from now till midnight just looking at maps and scrolling around and zooming in and zooming out and doing, doing all that stuff. So we've covered the southern border, the western border, the northern border. We still have the eastern border. Is there an eastern border? You know, when you describe the Abrahamic promise from the brook of Egypt to the, to the great river Euphrates, it might just encompass the entire thing, that, the way that it's described there, which means there is no eastern border other than where the Euphrates River ent- uh, empties out in the, in the Persian Gulf. It might actually encompass the entirety of what we call today Saudi Arabia, Yemen, Oman, all of the, uh, the Gulf states all of that, the entire uh, subcontinent, if you will, of the, uh, the Arabian Peninsula. In any event, that's not for today's class. Let's look at the eastern border in verses 10 through 12. For your eastern border, you shall also draw a line from Hazar Enon to Shephem. And the border shall go down from Shephem to Riblah on the east side of Ain. And the border shall go down and reach the slope on the east side of the Sea of Chinnereth. That's otherwise known as uh, the, the Sea of Galilee. Otherwise, it's got a bunch of names uh, as it relates to that. And the border shall go down to the Jordan, and its termination shall be at the Salt Sea. And so you do have an eastern line that has territory to the east of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, today we call it the Golan Heights. We call it the, that uh, disputed territory between Israel and Syria where you really want to hold the high ground because whoever holds that, that Golan region has the opportunity to uh, fire artillery to the lower ground on the other side. Um, anyway, so land on that side of the Sea of, of Galilee, we would call it in the New Testament, much much more well known as that. 
And then the Jordan River that flows south from the Sea of Galilee down to the, to the Dead Sea and uh, the boundary there. So the border shall go down the Jordan and its termination shall be the, uh, the Salt Sea. This shall be your land according to its borders all around. So southern border, western border, northern border, eastern border. Now these boundaries are only for the nine and a half tribes and does not include the two and a half tribes who uh, stated their preference earlier. Remember uh, last Thursday or Wednesday, one of those nights we had the uh, the episode when Reuben and Gad decided that they wanted uh, land for their cattle, that they raised a lot of cattle, and that the land to the east of the Jordan River that they had conquered when they conquered Sihon, king of Og, and, and Og, when they conquered those kingdoms, that that land was ideally suited for their uh, for their livestock. So they went to Moses and made the request. And Moses at first didn't like it, but then he, uh, after they explained it more, he accepted it. And in the will of God, they got that land. They were given that land to the east of the Jordan River. So uh, Numbers 32 is uh, what we were looking at the other night. All right, now it's time to actually appoint officers, land allotment officers, or LAOs, if you will. And uh, starting in verse 16, we, we have uh, them appointed. Let's go ahead and read 13 through 15 first. So Moses commanded the sons of Israel, saying, This is the land that you are to apportion by lot among you as a possession. So it's not the totality of the Abrahamic promise, but it is the uh, totality of what is going to be assigned as, uh, as tribal allotments when the, when the tribes settle. And so that's the, the parameters there. You are to apportion by lot among you as a possession, which the Lord has commanded to give the nine and a half tribes. For the tribe of the sons of Reuben have received theirs according to their father's households, the tribe of the sons of Gad according to their father's households, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. We saw three clans within Manasseh that had joined with uh, Reuben and Gad when uh, they were selecting land east of the Jordan River. The two and a half tribes have received their possession across the Jordan opposite Jericho eastward towards the sun rising. So that's the the summary of it there. All right, now the officers that get appointed. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, these are the names of the men who shall apportion the land to you for inheritance. And and so it's kind of curious to me on, on other events, like when Moses needed judges or when spies were selected and so forth. But here we have, you know, in, in some occasions they were asking for volunteers or they were requesting that the tribes would nominate uh, somebody to serve in, in that particular capacity. In this case, they're not taking nominations. The Lord himself is assigning the names of who he wants. So uh, the men who shall apportion the land to you, starting with Eliezer the priest and Joshua the son of Nun. And you shall take one leader of every tribe to uh, apportion the land for inheritance. And these are the names of the men. And the one we know the best is, is Judah, is uh, Caleb from the tribe of Judah, because he was the other faithful spy along with Joshua. Of the tribe of the sons of Simeon, you've got Samuel, the son of Amihud. The tribe of Benjamin, you've got Eladad, the son of Kislon. And remember, with every one of these son of, we're, we're talking about a dead guy. Because okay, the parental generation is now gone. And uh, the, the entire uh, structure of the nation of Israel is now uh, the, ex- the wilderness generation that has entered into their uh, generational accountability. Of the tribe of the sons of Dan, a leader, Buki, the son of uh, Jogli. So for the first time now, not, we have the reference to uh, this 
land officer as being an actual tribal leader. Of the sons of Joseph, of the tribe of the sons of Manasseh, again, a leader. We have this phrase, a leader, a leader. We didn't have it with uh, Caleb, the son of Jephunneh. We didn't have it with Samuel, the son of Amahu. Those first two tribes were appointed, apparently not being tribal leaders. But with Dan and these ones that follow, we have the term leader. Sons of Joseph, of the tribe of the sons of Manasseh, a leader, Hanael, the son of Ephod. Of the tribe of the sons of Ephraim, a leader, Kamul, the son of Shiftan. Of the sons of Zebulun, a leader, Elizaphan, the son of Parnak. The sons of Issachar, a leader, Paltiel, the son of Azan. And the sons of Asher, a leader, Ahihud, the son of Shalomi. And of the tribe of the sons of Naphtali, a leader, Pedahel, the son of Amihud. These are those whom the Lord commanded to apportion the inheritance of the sons of Israel in the land of Canaan. So that's ten. Ten officers that are designated, omitting Reuben and Gad, omitting Reuben and Gad because their land has already been selected to the east of Jordan. Uh, it does include Manasseh, but you know he's only got half a job to do because he only has the half-tribe, the clans that are crossing uh, the western side of the Jordan to be uh, receiving land on the western side. Only Caleb remains of the Exodus generation. Joshua does not serve as the Ephraim LAO, land allotment officer, uh, because he's supervising the entire nation through this process. He's actually Moses' heir, and he's going to be uh, uh, supplanting Moses here momentarily when Moses dies. Do you realize how close Moses is to death at this point? I know we're still in the book of Numbers. I know that uh, we haven't even gotten to Deuteronomy yet. But essentially, Deuteronomy is Moses' five farewell messages. He's already been told that he's done. He's already been told to, uh, to in full public view, uh, anoint Joshua as his heir. And, and the whole, that's already happened. We, we looked at that the other night. So that's already happened. Joshua is ready to take the reins at this point. That's how close we are to the death of Moses. All right, so we get now to chapter 35, cities for the Levites. Remember, Levi was set apart. Levi did not receive a land allotment. They're not going to have boundaries of any sort with respect to a territory that belongs to them as a tribe, because as a tribe, they're actually going to be scattered throughout all 12 of the other tribes. They're going to have cities that are going to be scattered, cities that uh, will allow for any tribe then to have a nearby uh, priestly representation, a nearby Levitical presentation where they can go to a local Levitical city for Bible instruction, for doctrinal uh, clarity and everything they were designed to do as a tribe in the Old Testament. We'll study that. In fact, we'll look at it here in this chapter. Levi will not have a land allotment, but they will have 48 cities throughout the other tribes' allotments. And that's going to be spelled out here. So let's look at verses 1 through 8. The Lord spoke to Moses in the plains of Moab by the Jordan opposite Jericho, saying, command the sons of Israel that they give to the Levites from the inheritance of their possession cities to live in. And you shall give to the Levites pasture lands around the cities. And so, you know, you just can't step outside the gate and be back in that tribal territory because there's going to be a a range of of pasture land around the city that, uh, that still belongs to that particular branch of the Levites. So pasture lands around the cities. The cities shall be theirs to live in, and their pastures lands shall be for their cattle, for their herds, and for all their beasts, 
Remember, they need a lot, first of all, to feed all the Levites, but also for the, the sacrifices that are going to be sent to, uh, to Jerusalem, to the temple. Pasture lands of the cities which you give to the Levites shall extend from the wall of the city outward a thousand cubits around. So that's your range, a thousand cubits. Cubit being basically uh, half a yard, 18 inches. You shall also measure outside the city on the east side 2,000 cubits, on the south side 2,000 cubits, on the west side 2,000 cubits, on the north side 2,000 cubits, with the city in the center. This shall become theirs as pasture land for their cities. All right, so that's verses 1 through 5. Also, some of these cities, not all of them, but in a, a, a subset, a, a selection out of the 48 cities, are going to be designated as cities of refuge. The cities which you shall give to the Levite shall be the six cities of refuge, which you shall give for the manslayer to flee to, and in addition to them you shall give 42 cities. So 48 total, but out of those, six of them are spotlighted as cities of refuge. All the cities which you shall give to the Levite shall be 48 cities together with their pasture lands. As for the cities which you shall give from the possession of the sons of Israel, you shall take more from the larger, you shall take less from the smaller. Each shall give some of his cities to the Levites in proportion to his possession with which he inherits. So it's not, it's not equally, you don't take, you know, 48, you know, divided by 12 and end up every, every tribe gives up four cities, uh, for the Levites because some tribes are a lot larger and some tribes are a lot smaller. So, it's not, uh, you know, it's proportional. Like the, uh, you know, we've got different things like that with respect to our Senate and our House of Representatives. The Senate is the one that's co-equal, where every state gets two. Doesn't matter if they're huge states like Texas or dinky little unpopulated states like Wyoming, you still get two senators no matter what. And uh, But then the House of Representatives is the one that's designed to be proportional. And so with respect to these Levitical cities, it is designated on a proportional basis. Gets us then to verses 9 and following. With respect to these cities of refuge then, six of the 48 Levitical cities are designated as cities of refuge. And it works out, God... You know, he's not winging it. He uh, he knew that those tribes were going to want three want land on the eastern side of the Jordan. So God has a plan, and that plan calls for three cities on the west side of the Jordan and three on the east side of the Jordan. And uh, we'll see the purpose of that. So this really gets us down through verse thirty-four. Let's uh, look at these subpoints because we have some concepts coming up with respect to the the blood avenger and some things. Let's take a look at this. I think there's, there's adaptations that we can make, and of course we do. We have a legal system where in which murder is investigated and it's adjudicated and the, uh, the perpetrator is entitled to a free trial, uh, and then once he's guilty, then, then the, uh, the sentence should be handed down pretty immediately. We, we fail in that regard. So, speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, when you cross the Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you shall select for yourselves cities to be your cities of refuge, that the manslayer who has killed any person unintentionally may flee there. The purpose for the city of refuge is so that he can get the fair trial uh, and the, the determination can be made on that. Called the manslayer. This is somebody who has taken a human life. And that includes premeditated murder, but that also includes uh, unintentional accidents, things that come along that, uh, that 
you know, resulted in physical death, but was not intentionally uh, done on that basis. In other words, it's not premeditated murder. We'll see that spelled out here. Anyway, that's where they have to flee to, because that's going to be their refuge, their protection against the family vengeance that may come. It also makes sure that the judgment is adjudicated at the national level, not the family level. Remember the laws of divine establishment, where we have volition, marriage, family, and nations. You want to make sure that this kind of justice is conducted on a national basis, in other words, a state level, a governmental level, not on a family basis. It's not Hatfields and McCoys making uh, family vengeance a, a feature of their, of their uh, existence. So, select these cities. The manslayer who has killed a person unintentionally may flee there. The cities shall be to you as a refuge from the avenger, Okay, there's the Avenger. This gets me excited too because, you know, we think Avengers, right? That's like, what is that? Is that like a Marvel comic? What is that? Actually, it's the Goel. It's the same term that we have for the Redeemer, the Kinsman Redeemer. And if that blows your mind, then we'll have some more fun with that when we get to uh, the book of Ruth. We talk about kinsman redemption. We talk about the role of Jesus Christ, who is our Redeemer. He died on the cross to redeem us from our sins. But don't forget, the Redeemer is also the Avenger. It's the same word. It's It's a similar concept. All right, so the manslayer will not die until until he stands before the congregation for trial. Because if he is legitimately guilty and if he does need to be executed, then it needs to be done in the right way as an expression of divine justice so that we're not just multiplying the defilements throughout the land where one murder leads to a revenge murder, leads to a revenge murder, leads to... Because every one of those murders, the shedding of innocent blood or the inappropriate shedding of human life leads to more defilement on the land. You want to execute capital punishment on the basis of divine justice to uphold the image of God, to honor the, the will of God in, uh, in our life. That keeps the land from being defiled. So, uh, he will not die until he stands before the congregation for trial. The cities which you are to give shall be your six cities of refuge. You shall have three across the Jordan and three in the land of Canaan. They are to be cities of refuge. These six cities shall be for refuge for the sons of Israel and for the alien and for the sojourner among them, so that anyone who kills a person unintentionally may flee there. But, and you'll notice it's the, the details on this, if he struck him down with an iron object so that he died, he is a murderer. The murderer shall surely be put to death. If he struck him down with a stone in the hand by which he will die, and as a result he died, he is a murderer. The murderer shall surely be put to death. Notice the the wielding of a weapon in your hand. You have sovereignty over what you are holding. You are accountable for what you are holding and what you use. If he struck him with a wooden object in the hand by which he might die, and as a result he died, he is a murderer. The murderer shall surely be put to death. The blood avenger himself shall put the murderer to death. He shall put him to death when he meets him. Now keep in mind, this is a, this is a feature that was given to Israel in the divinely sanctioned theocratic government of, of the Jewish people, that this is presented as the ideal form of government, that which is pleasing in the sight of God for the covenant people to engage in. And it allows for this blood avenger, this near kinsman, 
the one who would be responsible to redeem uh, a man out of his poverty or to redeem a land that had been sold or to redeem, uh, as in the case of Ruth, to redeem uh, this, this young woman that, that, that is still required to, to raise a child in the name of her deceased husband. The, uh, the, the blessings of redemption are part of the responsibilities and duties of the near kinsman. That's, that's why he's put his culture or put his covenant people into that structure. Not only do you have the privilege and blessing to be a redeemer, but here you have the duty to be the avenger, to be the blood avenger. In other words, you get to cast the first stone. You get to be the first with his hand against. And then, but not the only one, just the first, okay? Because this is a state sanctioned capital punishment execution that's taking place. The remainder of the tribe, the remainder of the authority structure, involved. And so um, to try to equate this in the modern world then, to try to, to take this to the state of Texas and how would we adapt our capital punishment laws for capital murder, right? When we have uh, a murderer that gets sent to Huntsville and, and, uh, and then the administration of the drugs that are applied to result in his physical death, right? Well, the equivalent would then be uh, the immediate family member of the murder victim would be invited in, which they are. They're invited in to observe through a glass window. Um, there's a glass window on one side for the family of the victim. There's a glass window on the other side for the family of the murderer. And both parties get to observe the uh, the execution um, with a pretty stiff wall in between. <laughs> you don't want to mix that those crowds. Um, but they, they are looking through the glass windows. They are observing the... Uh, the procedures, but here's the thing. They don't push any buttons. Okay? That when they're watching the procedure and and the 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 faculty or the, the crew, they come in, there's a whole team that does that, and the man's lay, strapped down, laying there, ready to be uh, put to death, there's actually two buttons that get pushed. The first puts in a, a sedative, kind of puts him to sleep very humanely, very gently. And then once he's asleep, the second button is the one that administers the, the, lethal, the lethal chemicals. So every time we talk about throwing the switch, that's a bit of a misnomer. Okay? It's not an electric chair anyway, but it's, it's actually two buttons for the, um, for the chemicals that are employed in the execution. So to take this chapter then and to adapt it, whereby the blood avenger, the near kinsman of the deceased would be the first to cast the first stone, then uh, the equivalent would be uh, taking one of those two buttons and putting it inside the, the, the room there where the family members would be the ones to actually push that button. And what does that provide? What, what closure does that provide? I hate the word closure. But what, uh, what sense of spiritual, emotional well-being is furnished by being the hand that does that? It's interesting. All right. So the blood avenger himself shall put the murderer to death. He shall put him to death when he meets him. If he pushed him of hatred or threw something at him lying in wait, and as a result he died, or if he struck him down with his hand in enmity, and as a result he died, the one who struck him shall surely be put to death. He is a murderer. The blood avenger shall put the murderer to death when he meets him. And so this is why you want to have the city of refuge procedure to 
to keep that from happening too soon, to keep it, to make sure that it happens, to make sure that that encounter happens um, in a judicial setting and not in a uh, in a personal vengeance setting. All right. How far down are we going to go? We're going to go down through verse 34, and then I'll come back and get the, the points in the outline. But if he, verse 22 now, but if he pushed him suddenly without enmity, or threw something at him without lying in wait, or with any deadly object of stone without seeing it dropped on him, so that he died while he was not his enemy nor seeking his injury. In other words, it's not premeditated, it's not intentional, we would call it inadvertent, or we would call it accidental. Then the congregation shall judge between the slayer and the blood avenger according to these ordinances. Again, it's a two-party, it's an adversarial judicial venue. And the congregation shall deliver the manslayer from the hand of the blood avenger, and the congregation shall restore him to his city of refuge to which he fled. He shall live in it until the death of the high priest who was anointed with the holy oil. And so it becomes a place where while he's on bond waiting for his his trial to to take place that he can he can be safe there and then when it's adjudicated in his favor and it is ruled by the jury it's ruled that he it was not premeditated that it's not murder then he's not guilty of murder he's not subject to the death penalty but as a manslayer he is still subject to a consequence and the consequence is exile in the city of refuge uh for whatever length of time, until the high priest uh, dies and a new high priest comes to office. So, I mean, I guess you're kind of hoping for an older high priest at that point or something. Um, you know, if you've got a young man that just took office last week, then you're going to have a longer time there in, uh, in that city of refuge. Notice also, if you try to, uh, if you don't stay on your ankle monitor, if you, if you depart from this, the, the city of refuge boundaries, if the manslayer at any time goes beyond the border of his city of refuge to which he may flee, the blood avenger finds himself outside the border of his city of refuge, and the blood avenger kills the manslaughter, a manslayer, he, that is the avenger, will not be guilty of blood. Something to think about. Because he should have remained in his city of refuge until the death of the high priest. But after the death of the high priest, the manslayer shall return to the land of his possession. At which point then the, the time limit is off and the, the blood avenger is now out of, out of uh, opportunities to, uh, to receive that. All right. Let's uh, go over to the left side and take a look at these now. The city of refuge is a grace provision for the manslayer's protection against the blood avenger. That is the close relative of the deceased. We looked at that in verses 9 through 15. And keep in mind, there is that 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 volitional desire there is a there is a will there is a desire there is a wish there is a, a want the family wants the payback the family wants the uh the justice and they want to be the ones that that administer that justice that's a that's a want that's part of their the fiber of their being this procedure is to to mitigate that this procedure is to to hinder that to keep that human desire from uh, being used inappropriately, keeping it in a judicial context. Uh, the city refuge is not a license to murder, but a place of safety until a fair trial can be conducted. If a manslayer is in fact a murderer, then the blood avenger will have the execution authority. You know, it just 
if he's a murderer, not a manslayer, uh, manslayer, that gets determined by the by the trial. And if in fact he is a murderer, according to the law, then he is a murderer, and he is to be put to death. The, the blood avenger will have the the first hand. If the manslayer who uh, is acquitted, then he has to live in exile within the city of refuge until the death of the high priest. At that time, his freedom of movement is restored, and he can return to his possessions, his house, his property, his family, uh, whatever else takes place. All right, then we have verses 29 through 34. The passage concludes with general principles for handling these homicide cases. So let's look through these. Verse 29, these things shall be for a statutory ordinance to you throughout your generations and all your dwellings. Uh, If anyone kills a person, the murderer shall be put to death at the evidence of witnesses, but no person shall be put to death on the testimony of one witness. Also, too, by the way, before I read the rest of this, did you notice in that trial that they, they get the evidence, they make the determination, is it manslaughter, is it murder? When they make the determination and the sentence is pronounced, you are a murderer, how long does it take to, to uh, inflict the death penalty? Okay, Notice you don't have appeals and then appeals of appeals and then you know four or five other courts and 30 years of a guy sitting on death row. The sentence is handed down and it is, it is administered. All right, we get more procedures here too. So again, what am I advocating? <laughs> Do I see improvements in the Texas Penal Code that could be made to bring things more into a consistency with God's revealed ideal? Sure I do. Absolutely I do. All right, witnesses, two or more. The evidence of witnesses, but no person shall be put to death on the testimony of one witness. You shall not take ransom for the life of a murderer who is guilty of death, but he shall surely be put to death. So someone might have a an idea that a ransom could be paid or some kind of uh, substitute could take place. No. He will bear his own guilt. There will be no substitutionary atonement. There will be no substitutionary penalty paid. There will be no ransom that could be paid to rescue from the consequences of his guilt. You shall, uh, verse uh, 32, you shall not take ransom for him who has fled to his city of refuge that he may return to live in the land before the death of a priest. So there's no early parole. As long as that priest is still alive, he has to stay in that city of refuge. So you shall, and which, by the way, what is that city of refuge, remember? It's a Levitical city. So who's he living with in that city? What's he doing in that city? So he's not a Levite. Well, he could, he could I guess, technically he could be a Levite. We don't know. There are Levitical manslayers, I'm sure. But assuming for the moment he's from the tribe of Reuben or Gad or Asher or whatever, and he's fled there to a city of refuge. He's not among his people. He's not among his relatives. He's He's... He's surrounded by Levites. He's surrounded by uh, probably priests. He's surrounded by um, folks that are assigned to be teaching the Bible. (laughs) So he's going to have an opportunity for whatever the length of his exile is. It's like a chance to, uh, you know, go back to school, a chance to, to learn some things while he's not living in his own property, living in his own land, administering his own family business or anything of the sort. Let's wrap up this chapter, though. I think some of these issues get important. Notice, um, until the death of the priest. All right, verse 33. So you shall not pollute the land in which you are, for blood pollutes the land. 
These procedures are in place. In fact, the whole legal code addressed uh, to, to uh, provide for a, um, you know, a motivation against uh, a deterrent is what I'm saying. Uh, the whole legal code that provides a deterrent for indiscriminate murder, for loss of life. We're trying to promote a culture that reveres life because blood pollutes a land. And no expiation can be made for the land for the blood that is shed on it, except by the blood of him who shed it. This is what heals the land. This is what provides the expiation for the shedding of innocent blood. Remember, murder is is cutting off the prerogative of God, the God who sovereignly determines our days, God who sovereignly determines the number of our days before there's even one of them. And, and then you come along and murder that person and take it upon yourself to have a, a, a greater wisdom than God to end that person's physical life today instead of the day that God called for it. That's, that's a defiance against the sovereignty of God, the life of God, everything else. This, this is why this judgment comes down. And the shedding of that blood, apart from the will of God, defiles the land. The only way to expiate it is by man his blood shall be shed. Okay? It's the image of, it's the defense of the image of God. Which is why the image of God has to be the one that administers the capital punishment. You shall not defile the land in which you live, in the midst of which I dwell, for I, the Lord, am dwelling in the midst of the sons of Israel. That because God has chosen uh, for the Holy of Holies to be his residence, that his Shekinah glory is going to dwell there in the midst of the Jewish people, that land has to be kept undefiled, has to be kept pure. So these uh, general principles for handling homicide cases, including the minimum requirement of two witnesses, um, that's something that, uh, that we see here. It's going to come back again a couple times in Deuteronomy. Likewise, Matthew 18, 16. When we do, that's the church discipline chapter, when we, we have to administer things within the corporate body that you go one-on-one and try to win your brother. If he doesn't, if he doesn't listen to you, then you go back with two or three. If he listens, then you've won your brother. You don't have to tell it to the entire congregation. John seven fifty one. <laughs> they wanted to murder Jesus, and you know the the temerity to speak up and say our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he's doing, does it? <laughs> and a little rhetorical question there. I think that's Nicodemus who who asked that. Yeah, they weren't happy with this question. <laughs> and then it's it's curious to me too when you get to the. Uh, the paragraph in between there with the woman in adultery, whether it's legitimate or not, the, um, there is a text question there whether that belongs in the Gospel of John. Uh, but it's curious to me that they had witnesses against her, but they didn't bring the man into the picture. Because they, they, they were caught in the act. Why, why wasn't he brought for trial? Why is it only the woman that was brought for trial with these uh, religious men ready to cast you know, stones? Verses 17 and 18 of John chapter 8. It has been written, the testimony of two men is true. I am he who testifies about myself, and the Father who sent me testifies about me. So the, the, the testimony for Jesus Christ is unimpeachable related to that. Anyway, two witnesses at a minimum. Finally, the last part there, how de- murder defiles a land. Keep that in mind. How many things defile a land? We've already seen in Leviticus the fornication that defiles the land. Remember that? Leviticus 18, 
Sexual perversion defiles a land. This is the real land pollution that the Bible speaks to. Okay? It doesn't speak to fossil fuels. It doesn't speak to straws in the ocean. It doesn't speak to uh, you know, landfills and plastic and whatever. Okay? It's not talking about smokestacks and dirty air. I get in trouble. I'm not pro-pollution. Okay? I like clean water. I like clean air. But I'm saying is, when rather than getting all wrapped up about earthly pollution, we should be first and foremost focused on the spiritual pollution that's going to cause this land to vomit its inhabitants. And so Leviticus 18, do not defile yourselves by any of these things, for by all these the nations which I am casting out before you have become defiled. Seven nations greater and mightier than Israel, and their time was done. God the Father sovereignly determined that they were no longer going to be people groups with, a, with, with national sovereignty. That they were being removed. If they chose to fight for their land and stand and fight, they were going to die. If they chose to flee, they were free to flee. But they would then be a people group living in a land that was not theirs because they would no longer have a land. The land that they used to have belongs to somebody else. The land that they used to have vomited them up because they defiled the land. The land has become defiled. Therefore I have brought its punishment upon it so that the land has spewed out, vomited its inhabitants. God is not a moral monster. He's not ordering a, uh, a genocide. These people were moral monsters. These people were abhorrent in God's sight. And as a nation they were being removed. So if it's this fornication and bloodshed, the third thing Scripture tells us is idolatry. Idolatry defiles the land. And the Canaanites were guilty of all three. And, uh, and America is guilty of all three. I mean, let's just face it. And uh, in our land is as defiled as anything. And uh, beyond the, the, the rampant fornication that's nonstop 24-7, the, the, the bloodshed. I mean, every weekend you get a report of how many were shot and killed in Chicago and how many. And, and we think oh, well, you know, those are just the gangbangers and the, the thugs in the hood and whatever. But um, that, that's a horrible attitude when you realize that all of that bloodshed is the image of God that's being poured out to defile this land. God's not going to put up with How much longer is God going to keep putting up with that? And so we have these issues here, okay? And so just as at the founding of America... Just as uh, as a new nation is established and the former nations that used to hold title on this land were removed by the sovereignty of God, the same thing can happen on on, uh, the other end. Uh, As as America was birthed in 1776 and are we going to die this year? When when is the end of, of the United States of America? I don't know. But the new people that come will be accountable before the Lord to not defile it with blood, to not defile it with fornication, and to not defile it with idolatry so that's the uh the close of chapter 35 all right let's look at chapter 36 we have these uh, daughters of zelophehad that are mentioned here okay we hadn't seen them actually in chapter 27 they had come with a question related to the inheritance and now we have the follow-up so all the the uh, the land appointment officers have been designated now. They're, they've got people uh, uh, 
determined so that once the conquest takes place, these tribal uh, officers are then going to start to distribute their land grant on a lot basis, assigning to the clans and the families within their tribe the, uh, the inheritance that is assigned. So verses uh, 1 through 11. And the heads of the father's households of the family of the sons of Gilead, the son of Machir, the son of Manasseh, of the families of the sons of Joseph came near and spoke before Moses and before the leaders of the heads of the father's households of the sons of Israel. And they said, the Lord commanded my Lord to give the land by lot to the sons of Israel as an inheritance. And my Lord was commanded by the Lord to give the inheritance of Zelophehad, our brother, to his daughters." But if they marry one of the sons of the other tribes of the sons of Israel, now you see this is why they have a problem. Okay? Because they, you think, well, what do they care who they marry? It's none of my business who they marry. That's, that's our culture. Don't, don't confuse our culture with their culture. Okay? Um, we don't give siblings a veto over who, who we marry today. But back then they did. Okay? Back then it was very much a matter for the extended family and clan and tribe. So we have these uncles and we have these cousins here, the brothers, the kinsmen of Zelophehad that are concerned about Zelophehad's five daughters, okay? Or Tevye. You can call, I think of Zelophehad as Tevye because he had five daughters. Anyway, if they marry one of the sons of the other tribes of the sons of Israel, their inheritance will be withdrawn from the inheritance of our fathers and will be added to the inheritance of the tribe to which they belong. That is the husband's tribe. The tribe they're marrying into is the new tribe in which they will then belong. Thus it will be withdrawn from our allotted inheritance. And when the jubilee of the sons of Israel comes, then their inheritance will be added to the inheritance of the tribe to which they belong. So their inheritance will be withdrawn from the inheritance of the tribe of our fathers. Okay? And they're right. This is a problem. That, that these girls, if they marry outside of their tribe, out, in other words, outside the, the uh, tribe of Manasseh, and I think even beyond... They, even I think there could be a, an issue if they marry a clan from the west side of Manasseh instead of the east side of Manasseh. I'm not sure on that. Anyway, it is a legitimate question. So Moses commanded the sons of Israel according to the word of the Lord, saying, the tribe of the sons of Joseph are right in their statements. And this is, again, we have these patterns whereby you can voice a concern. You can voice what you perceive to be a problem. And uh, notice that what, what they're doing, they're taking it to spiritual leadership and letting spiritual leadership deal with it. And spiritual leadership can either validate, yes, this is a problem, thank you for pointing it out. <laughs> or they can not validate it. They can say, nope, that's not a spiritual problem. God's got a handle on it. Here's what needs to happen. In either case, spiritual leadership evaluates it and spiritual leadership gives the explanation of where do we go from here? And I think that keeps the appropriate voicing of concerns from becoming rebellion, from becoming grumbling, from becoming uh, a stiff-necked people that just aren't happy with what their leaders are doing. Okay? And this is where uh, we see in the early church when the certain widows were being neglected, the, the Greek background widows were being neglected because the, the Hebrew background Jewish widows were being favored in the administration of, of the alms that were given there, the provision of food to those widows. And so what did they do? They brought the attention to the apostles. They, they made their complaint known. They said, this is what we perceive to be a problem. And it's not rebellion. 
They're not shaking their fist. They're not demanding, you know, uh, they're not telling the apostles what to do about it. They're just bringing it to the apostles' attention and waiting to see how the apostles deal with it. And that's, that's legitimate. This is legitimate. They're not demanding Moses do what they want done. They're uh, making the issue known and leaving it with Moses. And Moses says, yes, this is, this is uh, correct. The tribe of the sons of Joseph are right in their statements. So this is what the Lord has commanded concerning the daughters of Zelophehad, and not just them, but any other woman that ends up as an heiress, as an inheritor of, of uh, a tribe's possessions. Let them marry whom they wish, only they must marry within the family of the tribe of their father. So they're going to have a a limited pool in which to select. And keep in mind, they can marry whoever they wish because Zelophehad's dead, right? Their father is dead. That generation is gone. And uh, they don't have a father anymore to arrange their, uh, their marriages. Thus no inheritance of the sons of Israel shall be transferred from tribe to tribe, for the sons of Israel shall each hold to the inheritance of the tribe of his father. That is a fundamental principle. So Judah and Reuben and Simeon and Levi, all these tribes, they stay distinct, not Levi, but all these other tribes, they stay distinct in the land grant, the the subdivision of the promised land that they've been given. Every daughter who comes into possession of an inheritance of any tribe of the sons of Israel shall be wife to one of the family of the tribes of her father, so that the sons of Israel may possess the inheritance of their fathers. Thus no inheritance shall be transferred from one tribe to another tribe, for the tribes of the sons of Israel shall each hold to his own inheritance. And that's the the basic rule. And remember, the daughters only inherit so far as there are no brothers. Otherwise, the inheritance goes to the sons. And the daughters marry into and, and are part of their husband's inheritance. So, just as the Lord had commanded Moses, so the daughters of Zelophehad did. And we have the happy ending here. Uh, Mala, Tirzah, Hogla, Milcah, Noah, the daughters of Zelophehad married their uncle's sons. Okay, And you can think of them as the... Um, oh, no, I can't even remember fiddler on the roof, the, the girls. Uh, oh, that's terrible. All right, I'll let it go then. Remind me after class. I guess I know what I'm going to pick for a movie night tonight. All right. So uh, these five girls, they married their uncle's sons. They married those from the families of the sons of Manasseh, the son of Joseph, and their inheritance remained with the tribe of the family of their father. So by marrying their cousins, then um, the descendants then, all the children they give birth to are going to be legitimately sons of, of uh, Zelophehad's father. All right. So the conclusion of the book of Numbers is a follow-up issue to the inheritance question we looked at in Numbers 27. Um, sometime, point two, sometimes we don't think of all the details right away, but God has them all worked out. You know, and we've seen a couple of examples of that this morning already, like the, uh, the, the two and a half tribes that wanted to have land east of the Jordan and uh, didn't, you know, maybe didn't think through what the consequences of that might be, didn't quite think through that they're going to be outside the land of Canaan, and then maybe that would have an impact in other things. They didn't even know when they wanted that land out there. Gad and Reuben and the half tribe of Manasseh had no clues that there were going to be 
cities of refuge, or there were going to be uh, Levitical cities, 48 of them scattered throughout the, the land. They, maybe when, when they first heard this, they might start you know, thinking, ooh, did we mess up? <laughs> oh, wait a minute, maybe we're not going to get any cities of refuge, maybe we're not going to get any Levitical cities, because we're outside, the, we're on the wrong side of the, of, the, of the River Jordan. But no, God's got it all worked out. He, he knows where the Levitical cities are going. He knows where the cities of refuge are going. He makes sure there's three on the west and three on the east. It's all, uh, it's all dealt with. When we get Joshua's conquest and the, these cities are going to finally be named, we're going to have names and locations for all these cities of, of refuge and these Levitical cities. We're going to see that, that God was way ahead of them and he's got it planned for the west side and the east side of the Jordan. Same thing with the daughters of Zelophehad, you know, when they wanted to know if they could inherit Zelophehad's land grant. And uh, back in chapter 27, Moses said, sure. You know, but then in the meantime, all the uncles and cousins are saying, wait a minute. <laughs> what if they go, they marry outside the tribe? What if, you know, Gad, you know, scoops in and grabs a bunch of our land by, you know, marrying these girls? So sometimes we don't think of all the details right away, but God has them all worked out. You know, like when we come up with a harebrained idea to do a through the Bible year, and uh, and and we 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 there's certain things that come up after ten weeks, and you go, oh, okay, well, good thing God's got a plan because he's uh, he's got all these things worked out. The book concludes with a statement of divine origin, the final verse of of Numbers. These are the commandments and the ordinances which the Lord commanded the sons of Israel through Moses in the plains of Moab by the Jordan opposite Jericho. And it's a similar verse to how the book of Leviticus came to an end. It's, it's, it's just on face value, it is, you have to really be a, a liberally educated theologian to think that Moses did not write the Pentateuch. You have to absolutely buy into the, the liberal Germans and the insanity of, uh, of the higher criticism, that so-called higher criticism, that, um, that doubts... Mosaic, that deny, doesn't just doubt, flat out denies Mosaic authorship and, and attributes the JEDP hypothesis to all of the Pentateuch. And it's, it's just demonism. It is absolutely evil. It is satanic. I reject it. I hate it. And um, any uh, scholars today that, that follow the JEDP stuff just uh, need to quit preaching. <laughs> Whew. All right. Anyway. Um, that wraps up numbers. We'll come back next session for Deuteronomy. By the way, if you're not familiar with any of that, just thank God. Say okay. <laughs> but if you ever have any exposure to it, or if you're you're reading a commentary, you're reading something, um, it's 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 widespread. And the damage that they did in the 1800s is still poisoning churches today, poisoning seminaries today, poisoning all kinds of things today. So don't be shocked if uh, if uh, if you encounter it somewhere and they talk about the, the J author or the P author, and some of your tools may even address it too if you're reading in your um, uh, Lexham Bible Dictionary, you're reading in your Faith Life Study Bible, or you're reading some of the, the, the tools that you have, there will be authors in those references, in those uh, reference works, who will talk about the Pentateuch as if Moses is not the author. You just need to be aware of it. Don't be scandalized or panicked over it. Just realize that's the flawed view they're coming from and, and uh, like water off a duck's back, just let it go. Okay? And uh, deal with it after that. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for your truth and the privilege that we have to come together. And, and Father, I'm thankful we've now, by your grace, completed Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, 
and Job, Father. Five uh, books behind us, 61 more to go. Thank you for being faithful, Father, for blessing this study. We give you the praise and the glory, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.